0: So in a previous recording, I talked a lot about uh, remakes and reboots and everything. And uh, it can get really frustrating when you have something like that. But just after doing that recording, I decided to go ahead and re-watch uh, The Suicide Squad, which was the reboot, sort of, of the first Suicide Squad movie, which was just called Suicide Squad. And... Uh, As I mentioned in the recording, I did an entire re-edit of the first 30 minutes of uh, Suicide Squad that gave it a consistent tone, made it feel like, okay, you're getting introduced to a story. Uh, It didn't hop around as much. And the whole point there was there was some good material here, but it was focusing way too much on the Zack Snyder style of storytelling. And you can love Zack Snyder. I don't care. I don't. I think that he is not as good a director as uh, a lot of his fans tend to build him up to be. Um, Anyway, so when they brought in James Gunn, because James Gunn made Guardians of the Galaxy and they wanted to make the first Suicide Squad movie essentially a knockoff of Guardians of the Galaxy, they looked at what he did and tried to imitate it But the problem is, is that they also sent it through several different editings. So as a result, it was a total mess. Especially for the first 30 minutes, where you don't even get the title until 30 minutes in. That is a problem. Okay? When you have just a cold opening that goes for 30 minutes, you got issues. And that was entirely due, apparently, to... Uh, sending it over to be re-edited for like the umpteenth time by a production company that only does trailers and teasers. So as a result, it didn't feel like a proper introduction to the movie. So my edition, uh, I, will, I will just flat out say, had better style. Just right then and there, I will tell you. How do I know? How can I say that? Simple. Um, I introduce you to the Story the exact same way that they do with the slight cold opening. Uh, It's impossible to read the words Bell Rev uh, because they put like black print on a background with lots of shadows from trees and forest and swamp. So I actually bothered to put it in easy to read print. And then they show uh, Deadshot being, uh, you know, beaten up by the guards and everything. And what I did was I showed that as your cold opening, he's in prison and then cut to the title, the suicide squad or just suicide squad rather. And um, I have the music continue to play over that and then cut off into that reverb that you get um, before you go into the, um, before you go into all the other stuff. And so You have that that reverb going over the title. It's like, wow, okay, shocking, chilling, goosebumps, right? Then cut to the same character a few months earlier. Okay, so we're staying with that character. We're not moving on to Harley Quinn in her cell yet. We're not done with that. We're telling the story of how he came to be there. And it's just the scenes that we put in other parts of the film... And we just go ahead and put that in there. Why? Because then we're staying with that one character. We have that one character in mind. We're seeing it. We're seeing, oh, he's really a very capable assassin. He's very good at his job. He has this daughter. He loves this daughter. The mother is at odds with him and trying to vie for the daughter to just only care about the mom and not about this uh, assassin who doesn't actually care about anyone Uh, as far as she's concerned so we go ahead and show him going christmas shopping with his daughter a short while later and then they round the corner and we've already just seen him doing the assassination so we don't have to cut away to that we can just have him say no i i don't do that or whatever so he's lying to his daughter but it's a way of protecting her and then they're walking through the city they're going to his place and batman confronts him and she says no daddy don't fight him he's a good guy just just give him what he wants and you know she then says to batman please don't hurt my daddy and all that kind of thing if i remember correctly uh but it's a better scene when it's played out that way because you're staying with one character for a good chunk of the time you've already got that moment with introducing the title of the film right there within the first so many minutes and then we we have a a part of the story where we sympathize with the character. He has a child. He's just trying to make his way in the world. He's not necessarily a totally bad guy. He's just a hired gun. So we can appreciate that. He's just very good at what he does. He isn't making uh, the choice necessarily. He's just trying to make a life. And it just happens to be one where people hire him, tell him to point a gun somewhere, and he goes ahead and takes that person out um then we cut to harley quinn her time in prison and then what happened to her okay well we go back to that so many months earlier and we talk about oh well this is what happened when she was at arkham asylum and i just make that one consistent story from beginning to end and then we cut to uh if i remember correctly uh amanda waller and I cut out the nonsense with uh, Superman's uh, missing man formation at, uh, at, the, at the cemetery. No need for any of that. There's no need to mention, oh, remember in this other movie when Superman died at the end of Batman vs. Superman? Nobody wants to remember Batman vs. Superman. Barely anyone wants to remember Justice League. Yes, it, it's a shared universe. We get it, but that does not mean that we want to actually see all of that and be reminded of it. So as a result, uh, I went ahead and just left that part out. And honestly, if I were to completely redo the film, I would have actually lost a lot of the top 40 songs that they used uh, because uh, just a lot of it didn't make sense. A lot of it didn't fit. Uh, The House of the Rising Sun is a fine choice, and stylistically it sort of works at least, and I was able to do something with it for the credits. But then you don't have to cut to a new song A minute or two later right you don't have to cut to you don't own me you don't have to cut to this other stuff no there's no need for it so stylistically it didn't work and that was one of the reasons why i made those changes but that said with um the reboot we got a wonderful treat from james gunn because not only did he work very creatively with a lot of different various dc villains And really make it into something. Using a lot of B-listers and C-listers and D-listers that nobody cares about. But he bothered to really change up the pace. He bothered to make it something unique. Especially compared to the last one. He actually um, went from a very muted color palette at the very beginning. To suddenly having all these beautiful colors throughout the entire film. Which is uh, a signature that you get from Guardians of the Galaxy. What? A lot of the um, scenes throughout the film don't have, like, overly saturated colors, but it is colorful. You have people with blue skin, people with pink skin, people with green skin. And they bother to actually have the characters look, like, somewhat natural in terms of their color saturation. And they have a lot of the different backgrounds and settings somewhat natural in their color saturation, so it actually looks like a comic book in terms of the colors, but it's not so overly saturated like uh, Ghostbusters 2016 or something where it's hurting your eyes. But then, on top of that, even when it gets a little bit muted, it still works. You can still see the lights and darks. You can still see a lot of the the coloration on a lot of things. So it isn't all dark and gritty and uh, basically two steps away from being a black and white movie. Uh, and then... At the very end, spoiler, uh, we get a mid-credits scene where it's shown that Peacekeeper didn't die when he was shot, and he's actually in the hospital recovering, and two of the characters that were just background in the film are actually going to be part of this new spin-off series that James Gunn wanted to make, solely based on Peacemaker. So Peacemaker, I think I called him Peacekeeper a minute ago, anyway... So Peacemaker turns out to be a fascinating character because he was the basis for the comedian, who you'll remember from Watchmen, where a lot of that particular cast of heroes were all based off of Charlton Comics, which was acquired by DC after uh, the comic company folded. And uh, they had the writer trying to come up with uh, a story to integrate them into the uh, current DC timeline and everything. And instead he wrote this, this sprawling epic that uh, had a lot of the characters dying, had a lot of the characters uh, raping and murdering and doing all kinds of crap like that to one another. And um, he was like, okay, the, the editor was like, okay, well, we can't use this. If you, you know. And he, he was like, uh, okay, make the characters something else for that. And we're just going to go with someone else to do this. And I think we got Crisis as a result of that, and it just integrated some different Charlton Comics characters into the main DC universe. But it can get interesting when you do stuff like that. But Peacemaker himself is actually an interesting character. The different interpretations over the years are interesting. But when you get down to the TV series that James Gunn produced, he did a phenomenal job. It's actually a series where not only uh, do do I really enjoy it, Like, from beginning to end, I like every episode, every uh, part of every episode. is genuinely just a good series. But also, on top of all of that, I never skip the credits sequence. I never skip the opening credits, because I actually like the opening theme. And I'm a person where I always skip the opening uh, credits and all that. But I like this one enough. They usually give the uh, episode a cold opening so that it's well-paced, and that's just part of good storytelling. Good storytelling has the opening credit at some point done at a, at a good point in the story where you can have that. You, you, you need to get down the storytelling, the pacing, give people a chance to breathe. And that's where all of this comes in. That credit sequence that comes in is a chance for people to breathe because they need that space between what's happening in the cold open versus what's about to happen. You need them to take pause. So as a result, I absolutely love Peacemaker. I went ahead and rewatched watched um, The Suicide Squad, and it's one of those ones where I have no notes. Like, th- there's no notes for how to fix this. There's no notes where they went off. There's nothing I could do to fix this. You know, I've done uh, a re-edit of Ghostbusters 2016. I did a re-edit of... Um, what was it um the pod racer scene from episode one yes i did a re-edit of that and honestly a lot of it was i just left out a lot of the unnecessary scenes a lot of it's just surgically taking away a lot of stuff that's like goofy and unnecessary uh the part with the one creature farting on um jar jar totally unnecessary we don't need it cut it yeah it cost like $1,000 $1,000 a second to animate or something like that, I don't care. Just cut it. It, it. it didn't need to be there. It should have been left out in the storyboarding process. But uh, that said, The Suicide Squad, no notes. It, it is just good from beginning to end. It has a lot of the subtle stuff where it just shifts things, a lot of sight gags, uh, especially with the Polka Dot Man. I like it. It is just an amazingly good one. And the the Peacemaker spinoff series, fantastic. Uh, it actually also goes a bit into his backstory, being raised by a white supremacist, being made to fight his brother, and having the fight go a little bit too far, and the brother winding up dead, and then the father blaming the son. And it's like, you're the one who put them in a pit and told them to fight. So, that's on you for being a bad dad anyway so i wanted to touch base a little bit on that because uh i think that the new direction that james gunn is going to take the dc cinematic universe is going to be a heck of a lot better than Zack snyder because i've never seen Zack snyder as a very good storyteller he knows how to do slow-mo and speed up he knows how to uh, make everything dark and gritty and have blood splatter he knows how to have uh women with butts and boobs wiggling around and that's about it he's not a very good director in my personal opinion he's not a very good writer because a lot of his stories aren't very compelling i could go into why i think that is but um the long and short of it is he's an ayn rand fan and ayn rand was not a good author <laughs> i don't care what your thoughts are ayn rand was not a good author i read atlas shrugged not a good story um i watched uh, the movie version of the fountainhead not a good story the main character, the hero of the story, is a terrorist. And he decides to blow up a building simply because other people changed it and tried to make it more conventional. That is not a good story. That is a story of a terrorist. That is a story (laughs) that's, like, equivalent to The Joker, which is technically a prequel. But let's get on and talk about some other prequels. So one of the earliest ones, and I'm only going to be talking about prequels in film because prequels in books are too easy to do, you can just go back and read what was originally written and then just fill in your own stuff. It's too easy to do books that are prequels. Film is a little bit more difficult because you have to make it into something that audiences actually want to see. So that being said, one of the earliest ones is a prequel to the, the Golem from 1915 called The Golem, How He Came Into the World. And for those who don't know, a golem is a giant clay figure, usually human figure, and it comes from Jewish mysticism. Um, If I remember correctly, it's part of Kabbalah. I could be totally off there. But uh, the legend associated with the golem comes from uh, Warsaw and is uh, a story that was passed down over the years, a folk tale. And essentially the idea is that the golem was a protector of the Jewish people, a way that uh, the very earth, because it was a clay figure, the very earth could be used to, uh, just basically do the will of God and protect the chosen people from, uh, being slain and murdered. And this was very common. Uh, there were, there were a lot of, uh, various, uh, attacks of the Jewish people for centuries. Anytime that there was plague, anytime that there were, uh, woes of some kind, very often a lot of Jews got lumped in right alongside your witch burnings and your other things. This is one of the reasons why, um, Uh, especially uh, Ashkenazi Jews living in the diaspora have been uh, part of movements to protect marginalized groups because they don't want to see what happened to them happen to others so there's a lot of proponents who say you shouldn't marginalize black people you shouldn't wholesale murder them you shouldn't send them to prison uh, to do basically slave labor um, even if it's just slavery with extra steps so uh, the golem is a traditional symbol of that is is of protecting the people a guardian and you can also see golem uh figures used in uh, Terry Pratchett stories like Going Postal where the golem are used they're hired out as laborers for the post office and if you haven't seen Going Postal please do it's a fantastic movie I loved it um it features the late David Suchet in it um as the villain, which right away, you already know it's going to be amazing just with that. Um, But I believe it also has Michael Sheen in it, uh, in our lead role. Uh, It's just fantastic. You should absolutely check it out. Uh, But that's uh, an even better use of the golem figure uh, in a different way, because, of course, Discworld is not the same as uh, other stories. It's not centered on our mythology. Uh, This is the, uh, the... Author that gave us like Hogfather and all that kind of thing. So it's a fascinating bit of storytelling. But the next one that we can take a look at is the prequel to The Wizard of Oz called Oz the Great and Powerful. And most of you probably remember that. It starred James Franco and was directed by Sam Raimi. A lot of people criticized it for being way too overly similar to Army of Darkness, which was the third Evil Dead movie where this traveler comes from out of nowhere to this very simple land and uh, gets into a spot of trouble while being praised as their hero and savior and has to fight off the forces of evil. So, as it is, I didn't care much for Oz the Great and Powerful in terms of the story, like a lot of people, but there are the little moments where it's beautiful. And of course, uh, Raimi is a very visual director, so the visuals on it are stunning. But that said, the story itself is way too similar to Army of Darkness, and even though I like Army of Darkness, I liked it when it was called Army of Darkness. I don't need to see a retelling of it using Oz characters. Um, And I think that there were actually uh, parts of the story already written by L. Frank Baum. So... You had source material that you could go with. Now, one interesting one that uh, Disney did, because they are great when it comes to adding unnecessary content to a finished film. Like they did um, Beauty and the Beast, the Enchanted Christmas that took place over the time that they were together that we didn't talk about, where there's an enchanted pipe organ that like lulls the beast to relax and everything. And if I remember correctly, it's played by Tim Curry, and uh, it's like, wow, okay, that's, that's one interesting aspect of the story, and it sort of takes place in the middle of their time together. It's unnecessary, but I can at least watch it. Now, of course, that was a 90s thing. This one, we have a sequel to Bambi called Bambi 2, but it's not actually a sequel, it's a prequel. And I'm guessing that basically they were like, okay, well, we want to make a sequel to Bambi. But Bambi already grew up in the movie. But we spent a lot of time with Bambi and Bambi's mom and Thumper and Flower and his little animal friends and everything. Uh, You know, Bambi himself is, of course, a deer. So, uh, But these are all anthropomorphic. They all have, like, this little story. So 2006, we get this, and I... I can only infer that it's somehow telling the story of Bambi's years growing up with his father. If I remember correctly, I think that's what it's about. I'm not going to bother to look. Uh, But it was essentially meant to sort of tap into that property and use it some more because they were probably going to lose the rights to it and it was probably going to enter the public domain because that's what Disney does. Uh, Another prequel that uh, is a little bit interesting is a prequel to House of Horrors, from 1946 um, and uh, it's all about uh, a murderous madman called the Creeper and there was a prequel called The Brute Man and this was most notoriously used as fodder for uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 way back when it was still in like Comedy Central which is fascinating because they they were taking a prequel and going ahead and making fun of it uh, it's interesting to note that these were two of the only films that featured uh, Rondo Hatton, uh, who was a very large man, had um, had a very unique face uh, that a lot of people didn't find very attractive. And Anyway, so this was something where he actually got to show his face and everything, and he played a, just a big, muscly madman who did everything. But I've actually watched The Root Man uh, just on its own, and it is a delightful movie. So, I would gladly watch either of these because it's enjoyable. It has its own elements to it. It's not really a bad movie in and of itself, it's just offbeat. Uh, So, uh, moving on, of course, we have the prequel to Psycho called Psycho 4 The Beginning, and this was a made for TV prequel. And uh, if I remember correctly, this one had uh, a fair amount of creative input from, um, from Anthony Perkins, who, of course, played Norman Bates in the first film. Psycho itself is an excellent film, and if you were to only watch two movies from the Psycho franchise, it would be Psycho and Psycho 4, the beginning, because I think Psycho 4 is easily the most respectful of the sequels to the original source material. It doesn't try too hard to add on To what's already there. Psycho 2 is really good. Um, At some point I'm going to just do a big retrospective on all of the Psycho sequels. Uh, But Psycho 4 is easily one of the best. Okay. You've got Olivia Hussey as Mrs. Bates. And she was previously best known for playing uh, Juliet in one of the most popular versions of Romeo and Juliet ever made. Uh, It also features CCH Pounder. It's just a fantastic film, and I can recommend it to anyone, especially because that was the first one in the series that I watched. It was on late night on uh, USA during the summer, and of course I was on summer vacation, so I went ahead and I watched this, and I was like, you know, I I don't think I knew what it was. Uh, I think during a commercial break, I flipped over to the preview channel and saw what the title was, because they weren't showing it on, um, you know, like, no, back to Psycho 4 the beginning or something like that, but it was great. I loved it. Um, because it has great actors, it adds on, and it also doesn't exclusively take place just in the past. It has this uh, story that we keep coming back to, where Anthony Perkins, as the grown-up Norman Bates, is going through a crisis with his current wife and is worried that the child that is born from him will turn out just like him that itself is so poetic i mean how can you not love that that is a lot of uh that is a fear that crops up in a lot of parents minds that the trauma the cycle will be passed down all of the bad things that happen in their life will be visited upon their children and their children and they they want to end that cycle they want to have a better life for others around them there are a lot of people who go through a lot of trauma and so there's this wonderful reflection on everything that goes on throughout this story so as a result psycho 4 is definitely one that i do recommend because it is handled so well now for the next one that i know a lot of people already know about you've got the prequel to a fistful of dollars, and for a few dollars more, called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I bet you didn't even know that it was a prequel. I didn't know it was a prequel, but it absolutely is. It is so good. It is really, really good. I'm not even kidding you. So, uh, if you don't know what it's about, there are uh, three men vying for uh, some loot And this is the introductory story for the Spaghetti Western series about the man with no name. So if you were to watch them in order, in terms of what happens chronologically, you would watch The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, A Fistful of Dollars, and then For a Few Dollars More as the finale to that trilogy. These were the films that eventually gave Clint Eastwood his career, when later on he was uh, cast to play Dirty Harry Callahan based on the series of novels um, about that character so it's fascinating to note all of this because these were considered bad movies these were considered b movies because you had italian directors producing these films in spain and casting uh, cowboy actors who had a little bit of a run in uh, the 50s and so on uh, and who had fallen on hard times in recent years getting cast because people knew them as these actors from westerns and so The Italians were like, hey, come over here, play a part in our movie, and, you know, you can dub over your lines or speak your lines as it is. And you had um, all kinds of different actors. It was an international production. But because they were being directed and produced by Italians, they were known as spaghetti westerns. So all of that to me is absolutely fascinating. Is just this little uh, period in cinema where you had Europeans imitating and... uh, imitating a lot of uh, American-style stories but expanding on them and making them into something completely new by integrating certain elements of uh, opera and melodrama that uh, come from the Italian school of storytelling and theater where now you have a much bigger story. It's much more epic. You have uh, the music stings used for scenes where there's absolutely no dialogue. Whereas in Westerns, American-style Westerns, it typically doesn't play that way. We normally have scenes where uh, there are men on horses and they're shooting guns and everything. Instead, here, it's all about the suspense. It's all about the tension being built up. And that makes a huge difference for audiences. Because now you've got drama. You've got a story about characters. And in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, we get a perfect example of that because we have literally three characters that are just exactly as described. <laughs> and it works. It's a solid prequel that you can absolutely watch and you'll enjoy. And it was made by the same people, so it has that feel. Rather than like with Psycho 4, the beginning, it feels very different from what Hitchcock did back in 1960. So even though it's not the same movie... Um, in terms of all of the stylistic elements, it's still a good prequel. And, uh, of course, House of Horrors and The Brute Man were produced by the same people with the same actors and everything, so as a result, it feels like it's just one contiguous part. But for the Man With No Name trilogy, we get uh, treated to something that's just a little bit different because it feels like a good, solid story, and each one is like a novel and, and part of a three- Part series of novels, so you you feel a lot more when you're watching these. It's not just for macho dudes and everything. There is a lot there, and a lot of the spaghetti westerns genuinely have just a different feel to them. Uh, Bob's Burgers uh, actually had a, a series of films within the the show called Banjo, and then I was watching a spaghetti western that was just on somewhere at one point. I think it was on. Uh, stars westerns or something like that and lo and behold there was a character who had a gun hidden in a banjo so i'm like is this a real thing <laughs> so wild anyway uh so from there we can move on to uh the late 60s whereas this was in the mid 60s with uh, the spaghetti westerns and we get uh some of the kaiju movies from japan and uh, in 1968 we got Destroy All Monsters and then the same production company decided to produce prequels that uh, were s- just centered around the plot of Destroy All Monsters. So you got Godzilla vs. Hedera, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla vs. Megalon, and Godzilla vs. Godzilla, and then finally Terror of Godzilla, which had uh, a couple of different characters all coming together and fighting. Uh, so it was a- an interesting sequel in that right Um, because technically all of these are sequels to one another but they are all prequels to destroy all monsters in terms of the timeline uh, within the story but you wouldn't think that godzilla was ever worth it but this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have this cult association with godzilla when i was a kid i watched them all the time and then after um the 70s uh when the 80s and 90s came around they started making sequels That involved a lot of that. Uh, Where there would be plots around Mothra and Godzilla and some of the other characters. Uh, I talked about this a little bit in terms of uh, the sequels and reboots and so on when we talked about the American versions of Godzilla and the American versions of King Kong uh, that came later over the years. There was a Japanese uh, movie that featured Godzilla versus King Kong where they got the rights to do it, but. Uh, it's always been more of a cult movie than anything else. Godzilla itself was a cult movie, much like the Spaghetti Westerns and some of these others. But um, in terms of a lot of these uh, sequels from the 70s, they tend to uh, work very well. They tend to be very enjoyable and have very interesting uh, storylines overall. They did an okay job adapting a lot of the dialogue for dubbing. So I can always recommend those because... Growing up, I loved them. They were so campy and fun. You're watching a movie about giant monsters destroying places, and they're just people in big rubber suits stomping around uh, model sets and everything with little model tanks and planes and things. There's so much to love about it. It's, it's fun. It's campy. It's good light entertainment. But when you listen to the dialogue, there is something actually there. I always enjoyed it. Uh, so moving on, you have uh, the Planet of the Apes series which a lot of people know about, of course, because we've had reboots and sequels of that. (sighs) The fact that we have reboots and sequels to the reboots is astounding to me, but they had to go and make it. And then when the first one, when the first reboot failed, the Tim Burton one, that had like Mark Wahlberg and Paul Giamatti and all them in it, um, I think I also had like Michael Clark Duncan in it, and he was phenomenal in it. It was very well made, but... I know that the studio wasn't really happy, even though it did lay ground for a sequel. It was just kind of a, what the heck's going on here kind of sequel that was going to have to answer all the questions. Uh, But uh, the original Planet of the Apes from 1968 did have a sequel called Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which a lot of people remember because that features the human survivors of the nuclear apocalypse who worship the atomic bomb in the ruins of New York City. And uh, you have another astronaut who was sent after them to find out sort of what happened to Taylor and everything. So you have a brief cameo by Charlton Heston. And uh, anyway, that particular one works out uh, very well. That was a fascinating story, but they wanted to write the end to the series at that point. They wanted it to kind of end. So they wrote that the bomb goes off and everything, and it's like, how do you write prequels to that? And so you end up with a really excellent uh, story called Escape from the Planet of the Apes that takes place in a not-too-distant future version of Earth that is very clearly like sort of the 1970s or 80s in terms of uh, when it is supposed to be set. But of course it was filmed in 1971, so it features a lot of men in turtlenecks with uh, the longer hair that was the style at the time. And so it feels very dated and vintage, but I don't hate it. Okay, so that's one that I actually enjoyed. Uh, I remember growing up, I loved it. I, I thought that, you know, because you would watch the Planet of the Apes movies when, it, when they came on, especially what, because uh, weekend broadcast TV. We had cable, but I would enjoy all of that. And it was actually a great deal of fun. So you had a wonderful part to that story. And then uh, they made a sequel to that one. So Escape is both a sequel and a prequel in one. That's fantastic, and then Conquest of the of the Planet of the Apes was the sequel to the prequel sequel that we got before the previous year. And for Fox, this was a huge money maker. People loved it. They loved the the feel. They they loved uh, the sense of the world. It was genuinely an interesting one. This one, you have a future uh, utopia in many ways where everything is very idyllic uh, the streets are clean and they used uh, if i remember correctly the century city city uh, office uh, blocks that uh, 20th century fox had just built so it was like uh, their administrative area and they used that as their locations so the filming was cheap because it was owned by the studio and they were able to film mostly at night in order to make it inexpensive to shoot because then you don't really have to build a lot of sets so they love that and it is all about uh the child of the two apes that escaped in in escape from the planet of the apes and they uh they have to they they don't make it you know the, the the apes series does not have happy endings So Conquest of the Planet of the Apes actually has one of the more controversial endings. And it has one of the more controversial stories. Because in this story, this was before we had Terminator and and all of the machines rising up and taking over and uh, enslaving humanity or wholesale slaughtering humanity. Uh, This was before the Matrix had images of machines being enslaved. And so in this one, the apes are slave labor. They have been cultivated and bred to serve as human slaves. And so humanity has not learned the lessons that we learned from enslaving people before. And I would count the apes as people in this case, because they have feelings and thoughts and ideas. So we haven't learned our lesson in Conquest about the question of slavery. Uh, and there is a beautiful speech at the very end, delivered by Roddy McDowell, that I recommend if you, if you don't see any of the Planet of the Apes movies, any of them, the, the original, the remakes, any of them, Go ahead and just pull up that final speech, and it is easily some of the best writing and acting that I have seen in my life. It is compelling. It is a tour de force. It has poignancy, gravitas, everything that you could want. And this is after a big, spectacular sequence where the apes are rising up and overthrowing the humans that have enslaved them. It's fantastic. I cannot praise conquest of the planet of the apes enough it is even better than any of the ones that came before it so this was like the pinnacle and so not surprising we got another prequel uh that was battle for the planet of the apes which featured uh further ape uprisings and it was like more of a war story with uh, with army uh soldiers battling the apes and everything and uh, of course this led to A series a TV series later on uh, that was uh, fairly popular Uh, that was again a prequel series that was talking about the origins of the ape society in which now society has fallen you know human society has fallen anyway and now the apes and the humans are trying to establish some kind of coexistence you have a um, you have uh, various apes played by some marvelous actors throughout the story uh, of the series And unfortunately, it was one of uh, those ones that got canceled, largely because the ape makeup was so expensive, even though by this time they had been doing the ape makeup for years. But it was a semi-popular series. It was definitely a cult series, and you can look it up. Uh, It features uh, some fantastic acting by a lot of the big actors of the time. So I easily give that one a recommendation. So then you get another... Uh, prequel made to butch cassidy and the sundance kid and in this case uh it is made 10 years later so uh they had to recast with tom Behringer and william Kat. so you can already tell right away that because these are actors who back then were actually fairly popular tom Berenger would go on to uh be in films like oh uh Eddie and the Cruisers and Major League and Platoon and all kinds of amazing stuff and of course William Cat would be uh the greatest American hero and uh he was in one of my favorite uh horror movies House uh but uh it, it's just interesting to note this because they actually did bother to make a prequel to Butch and Sundance because they can't make a sequel because at the end of Butch and Sundance or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid the two characters die <laughs> So, you can't make a sequel to that, so you can make a prequel. And you cast some okay actors in it, and, you know, you make the movie, you make your money, there you go. Uh, likewise, you get a similar product in uh, in uh, 2012's Easy Rider, The Ride Back. Now, let's just think about this. We have another movie produced at the same time as Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, Easy Rider, where you got a a couple of guys uh, riding through the American country. Fun fact about Easy Rider, it was actually written as they made it. They just came up with different parts of the story, and that's one of the reasons why the ending is so abrupt and just out of nowhere, where they're just riding along, and a couple of of, uh, country boys in a pickup with a shotgun uh, tell them to get a haircut and just shoot them and they wind up spilling out on their um, motorcycles after all these adventures and just dying along the side of the road, which of course inspired uh, the ending of season one of the Venture Brothers, which I didn't even know at the time, but I I saw Easy Rider soon after and it suddenly made sense. But uh, yeah, they decided to make a prequel called the ride back, which doesn't even make sense. Uh, But yeah this was produced in 2012 uh it had none of the people involved it was uh just we had you know the the studio and director were like we have the legal rights we're going to produce uh another movie based on this uh based on this other film and that's it so (laughs) wow okay uh good luck with that now i can honestly say why would you do that what why You know, because if you were to remake it, then it would be a piece of crap because you can't remake Easy Rider. I talked about this in my earlier recording how you can't redo something like that. Um, The whole reason why we eventually got uh, a a Vince Vaughn uh, remake of Psycho with like Anne Hesh and everything was because they the director specifically never wanted anyone to make a remake of it. There were already sequels that tried to capitalize on it, and someone eventually was going to try and remake the initial one, and the initial one is so perfect for what it is. It doesn't need a remake. In this case, I can tell that the Easy Rider folks were like, okay, um, we'll make a prequel to it. I can't judge it based solely on that. I haven't seen it. But then, given that this is the first time I'm hearing of it, probably nobody has heard of it, and nobody saw it, because otherwise we would have already talked about it. Uh, so, that said, let's move on. So, The Godfather, big hit in 1972. A couple years later, we get The Godfather Part Two, and then they didn't end up producing The Godfather The Godfather Part Three, until, I think it was almost two decades later. So that itself is pretty wild, but The Godfather Part 2 ended up being a success because you had the same talent attached. It told a lot of the origin stories uh, of everything. So it worked better because it was only made two years after Part 1. And if Coppola had just went ahead and produced Part 3 in some way around the same time, like in 1976 or something, there might have been something worth. Worth it, but having two parts itself is a lot of movie and a lot of story, and they didn't necessarily need a sequel. So a lot of people often point to the Godfather trilogy as an example where the third part was totally unnecessary and seemed to just be uh, trying to capitalize on name recognition, which is a lot of the problem with a lot of sequels. In this case, we got a prequel that talked about a lot of the early days and so on, so it sort of works a little bit better. And a lot, as a result, a lot of people really love. The Godfather Part Two. So next we come to the prequel to Mortal Kombat, which was actually released simultaneously. And if you haven't seen uh, Phelan Portius' review of Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins, it was a promotional movie. Uh, Released a video that featured hand-drawn animation over CGI backgrounds. And it would quick cut to really cheap CGI. And the whole point is that it's basically telling the story of the boat trip over to the tournament that takes place in the middle of the film. And so it just takes some portions that weren't necessarily uh, ever going to be used and weren't necessarily that interesting and just makes a movie out of it, and it isn't very good. (laughs) So uh, it's just worth kind of noting that. So uh, then you have The Exorcist, and this is another one where the franchise just grew out of control you had the exorcist 2 and the exorcist 3 which itself was another script that just got made into an exorcist sequel and don't you hate it when they make sequels from scripts that are something else you have to actually work to make that uh, something where it's worth actually watching and, and enjoying and everything so that one can be very frustrating, but Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion prequel to The Exorcist were not especially loved by a lot of people. People watched them, but at that point, let's keep in mind that it had been 30 years since The Exorcist came out. So everyone who watched the original Exorcist movie was and loved it at the time was probably in their 50s or pushing fifty at that time and you want to make a sequel to this that's actually a prequel and trying to capitalize on the brand name it's like you have to work harder than that you have to actually cultivate something you have to and this is something that a lot of uh, studios will do is they will show the related movie or the related TV show like they did with Land of the Lost when that movie came out they went ahead and had a marathon of it on the sci-fi channel where they were just showing the entire run of the original 1970s land of the lost. And then it turned out that the movie land of the lost was not even remotely based on that. And they just wrote an entirely different story. So with this one, uh, the studios just had the rights. So they went ahead and wanted to produce sequels, but they couldn't produce any more sequels because they were totally out of ideas. So they were like, ah, we'll do prequels because in the early two thousands, everyone's doing prequels. Prequels are the thing to make. And it's like, why? Why would you do that? There's no point to it. Speaking of which, we got a prequel to 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2017's Leatherface. This is long after the prequel craze has gone the way of the dodo, and yet they still decided to produce a prequel. I never heard of it, and probably neither have you. It stars Stephen Dorff. A name that most of us haven't heard of since he did ads for uh for vape pens and so on to try and give up, get people to give up smoking yeah so they were they had steven dorf money to produce this movie and steven dorf signed on to do it and this is not a hatred thing for steven dorf i loved cecil b demented i even liked him in blade he just wasted a lot of his time and talent and career And probably had that star fade very quickly for him because usually it's because you're difficult to work with. So I can only guess that. But this guy could have had a monumental career easily on par with like Ben Affleck or Matt Damon if he had played it right. But I haven't seen Leatherface, so I won't judge. He could easily be amazing in it. But considering that I've never heard of it and so... A lot of people have never heard of it. We're not sitting around talking about movies that a lot of people love. It's like, wow, okay. But there have been sequels to Texas Chainsaw Massacre that played up on a lot of crazy stuff. I would at least sit down and watch it before I judged. Because I loved Psycho 4, and this is in the same vein. After all, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho were both based on the case of Serial Killer Ed Gein. Not even kidding. They, came, they both, both films came from the same origin. Mind blown. Okay, so uh, next we have uh, the prequel to Master of the Flying Guillotine, which was called Fatal Flying Guillotine. So this one is a prequel to Master of the Flying Guillotine, which itself is a sequel to 1971's One-Armed Boxer. Uh, which I find fascinating. Um, And it's also known as One-Armed Boxer 2 or One-Armed Boxer versus the Flying Guillotine. So uh, for those who don't know, this was another cult thing uh, with uh, cult movies back in the 70s where you had a lot of movies that were coming over and being imported to the United States and shown in a lot of cinemas as cinemas were dying because these were cheap to get the rights to. And so you had a lot of people who still wanted to go to movies because they were uh, fairly cheap entertainment. And people still wanted to go to like midnight showings and they wanted to go to matinees on the weekends and entertain themselves when they weren't uh, working their jobs. So just from a very realistic point of view, you had a lot of people who grew up with a lot of these uh, various imports like the aforementioned spaghetti westerns and the kaiju movies. So all of these were films that were exported and shown over and over at uh, these various cinemas and shown on TV uh, because they were cheap to get the rights to, and people just ate it up. So it's fascinating to look at this and know that there was a prequel, and it was made by the same folks. Uh, you've got uh, a lot of these various releases that you'll occasionally see on cable, usually um with uh, like Shaw Brothers at the beginning, uh, which was uh, just the, uh, if I remember correctly, the American distributor, and many of them, I believe, were based on popular Chinese operas. Uh, which, if you don't know anything about Chinese opera, it's very much similar to uh, your uh, Western opera, uh, where there is the melodrama. There, there is this uh, compelling story about people, and sort of challenges they faced Uh, so for example if you loved uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon that was based on a similar kind of uh, thing you've got uh, all kinds of uh, various kung fu movies from throughout the 70s and 80s that were largely based on um, events like this stories that were being told over and over again that were immensely popular and, and done in live action usually without the combat usually with the combat done in a sort of stage combat method Uh, But for me, this is stuff that's absolutely fascinating. You probably don't really care, but I'm a nerd for this stuff. This is stuff I find absolutely thrilling. Because we have Shakespeare, and Shakespeare often featured stage combat. We have opera, uh, which doesn't often feature stage combat, usually. um, And here we have something from China, uh, specifically the Hong Kong film industry was the big uh, producer of a lot of this. You see some of this in, uh, in uh, some of the Bruce Lee movies that uh, he produced uh, before his uh, untimely death. And the direct result when Bruce Lee kind of helped bridge that for a lot of people and bring a lot of people in on that, because this was an American star producing a lot of these really fantastic uh, kung fu movies set in the modern day, rather than a lot of the ones that are set in a more medieval Chinese setting. Um, in this particular case, Flying Guillotine is is an immensely popular one. Uh, it was even the basis for a Mythbusters segment, where they were trying to see if you could actually decapitate someone using a Flying Guillotine-type device. Now, of course, being kind of a, uh, a stage show kind of thing or being a movie it's played for spectacle. It's meant to be kind of an unrealistic, fantastical kind of thing. So it's not necessarily something where you have to have it 100% accurate. It's meant to be something uh, where you suspend your disbelief and just believe that for a minute. And if you want to know exactly what I'm talking about with that, uh, I'll go back to my favorite uh, example, Inception. In order to watch that movie and enjoy it, you have to accept the concept of a machine that you connect with Multiple people, too, and they share dreams. That does not exist in reality, and there is no way to make that exist. But we have to accept that such a device exists in the film in order to make the story work. But we don't ever talk about how the machine works. We talk about the mechanics of shared dreams, but we don't talk about how the actual device works in order to facilitate shared dreaming. So in this particular case, I'm willing to say just go ahead and see this because it's produced by the same people as a prequel that talks about it. And it sounds really interesting. It sounds like it has a lot of fun and action to it and some interesting character developments. One of the ones that I caught on cable one time was called Come Drink With Me. And as I was watching it, I was like, holy crap, this is a drama. You know, like it involves a a guy drinking and everything, and it involves like a government official coming to... uh, try and uh, find this one person and he keeps trying to make a pass at her and uh it has a tragic ending and everything it's like wow okay so this is actually like a real story so as soon as you realize that in terms of a lot of these uh 70s kung fu movies and everything that came out from the hong kong uh film industry you start to realize that there's a lot more to these than just stories about people fighting (laughs) it's not just fighting the fighting is coming from something else in the story so moving on we've got the uh, star wars this is going in based on the original film and when it came out so uh, for those who are confused as to why some of these films came out so much later than some of the others this is why uh, so you've got star wars and then we got the prequel trilogy of Phantom menace attack of the clones revenge of the sith and then in addition to that we got the Clone Wars, we got um, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, Solo, a Star Wars story. All of those are prequels, if you can believe it. All of these were prequels. We got a prequel to the Han Solo in uh, Star Wars. And this was done in 2018. So we're talking about 41 years after the first film. And if you ever want to wonder why exactly it didn't really work as well compared to like rogue one, which I loved it's because uh, rogue one built off of what was already there. It filled in a lot. It made the story work. It built up what was already established and it didn't try to go too far into its own thing. Solo decided to introduce this completely other element of this uh, one uh, gang or something, this one empire that was uh, supposedly going to come up later on or something like that, and it's like, okay, but why would you do that? (laughs) It was already problematic when the prequels decided to uh, start talking about the Clone Wars and did not immediately introduce that in Episode 1. So instead we got two movies that were uh, the Clone Wars, and then we got a little animated serial for uh, around the time that Attack of the Clones came out. Uh, called Star Wars: The Clone Wars, that was produced on, uh, or it was uh, shown on Cartoon Network and everything. And this was before Lucasfilm got sold to Disney. And if you look it up, it's still amazing and it holds up perfectly. And they have uh, amazing storytelling that holds up from one iteration of the story to the next. They've done a remarkably good job in terms of the animated Star Wars adventures and the live-action TV shows like Obi-Wan and The Mandalorian and all that. But as it is, uh, just for example, The Bad Batch is technically a prequel. It it takes place before Star Wars, but it is done very, very well. And if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. It's very kid-friendly. You also have uh, Star Wars Rebels, which is technically a prequel. I find it all very fascinating that they're actually able to keep that pretty well done in all Uh, I didn't think I was going to like it as much as I did Uh, so then uh, the next year we got Alien and then in 2012 and 2017 let's see how many years is that Um, 33 years and 38 years respectively you got Prometheus and Alien Covenant and not a lot of people love those I watched them and I was like this is okay but not great (laughs) it's like Yeah, it's definitely a spiritual sequel to Alien, but Alien was a monster-in-the-closet kind of movie. Alien was a monster movie. Aliens was an action movie, as many people know, directed by James Cameron. Prometheus is going right back and saying, okay, well, instead of a monster movie, we're going to have just a whole big mess of prequel explaining everything that you never wanted to know. It took the space jockey and turned it into something else entirely. It was not as satisfying for a lot of us. Now, by contrast, you get the prequel to Predator called Prey. And let me do some quick math here. That one came out uh, looks like 35 years if I'm doing the math correctly. No, four. Yeah, 35 years after the um, after the original because the original came out in '87. Prey came out in uh, 2022. So that's 35 years and people actually liked that one people enjoyed it why because it respected what came before it didn't need to give you like oh this is a prequel and this is how all that ha-. no it's a story about people going through a thing it doesn't have to lay little easter eggs or build up a mystery about itself like uh prometheus did prometheus actually ticked a lot of people off when they tried to uh plant this little east you know this little mystery of like Uh, Oh, well, is there someone else on this ship that we don't know about or whatever? Probably the best part of that movie is Michael Fassbender. That's about it. (laughs) Prey worked so we can enjoy it. Uh, But then we get a prequel. And this is a little bit odd. Because you have Alien, already mentioned. And we get prequels called Alien vs. Predator and Alien vs. Predator Requiem. And then a sequel to that called The Predator, right? Okay, so that's what we're going with. That's, that's, that's what's established. We've got in this other branch of the series that involves aliens and predators together <laughs> from these two different films, uh, both owned by Fox, you've got two Alien vs. Predator movies neither of them especially loved, and then they waited... 11 years to make the predator and then they uh waited four years after that to make prey i don't think anyone liked the predator i think that was a bit of a problem they didn't bother just numerating it which is a problem in itself you're calling it the predator why not just call it predator 3 even though technically at this point with the with the uh crossover movies it's technically uh what would it be let's see you had uh Alien 3, Alien uh, Resurrection, and then that series died out. And then you had Alien vs. Predator, which is, uh, at that point, Alien 5, Predator 3. Alien. (laughs) If I'm doing this all right in my head. Then Aliens vs. Predator, Requiem. Okay, why is it Alien vs. Predator and then Aliens vs. Predator, even though Alien vs. Predator still had Aliens, plural. Okay, well, anyway... Um, so you got aliens versus predator requiem which is alien six and predator four and then the predator in 2018 which would then be predator five and then prey is technically predator six so if you were to give them all like subtitles or something that would be what you would have (laughs) you know but you could just call like the predator uh predator five and then uh call uh prey just predator six prey i don't know this is just me sitting here and thinking about this weird stuff right (laughs) okay well anyway then we got prequels to the amityville horror which you had amityville Two: the possession which not a lot of people loved but it came out three years later and i don't think it had a lot of the same creative team involved so there you go. Um, it had a completely different cast and just was not as popular as the original. Um, just fascinating to look at. And then you had some sequels made after that, Amityville 3, Amityville 4, which is most notoriously the one that involves The Lamp. If you want to see a really great review of it, I, I will refer you again to Phelan Porteous. Uh It's easily one of my favorites of his. Uh, I adore it. So then we got some weird uh, prequels to Night of the Living Dead called Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. And both of these were just trying to capitalize on it. Um, uh, Survival and uh, Diary of the Dead were both written and directed by George A. Romero. So uh, at, at that point, a lot of people... We're trying to do prequels. As I said, this was the two thousands and this was a big thing in the movie industry. So, uh, they got George A Romero on board and offered him a lot of money to produce it. I don't recall really enjoying diary of the dead, uh, because it was done more as a found footage one, if I remember correctly. And I find that frustrating because I hate found footage movies. Yeah. Uh, And then Survival of the Dead tried to be another prequel that didn't use the found footage uh, style, apparently. So, whatever. I mean, you've already got the trilogy of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. And all three of those are perfect in their own way. I've talked about this in other blogs where I've talked about uh, how I actually don't like zombie movies, but I like certain ones because they are really decent in terms of their storytelling and what it tells Okay, so given all that, um, should you see them? I would. I would skip Diary of the Dead unless you like found footage movies, and I would actually uh, maybe give Survival of the Dead that came out the next year a chance and actually enjoy that. So next we have the Muppet movie in 1979, and then that got a prequel in 2002 that was direct to video called Kermit's Swamp Years. So let's do the quick math on that. That is 23 years. <laughs> wow. 23 years for a Muppet prequel that nobody was asking for. Um, I would give it one chance. I would give it one chance, and if I didn't like it, then I'd write it off. But you have to work very hard to get me to actually say, uh-uh, no, never. Uh, because at this point, remember, this is a Disney production, and they love doing this crap. They love just pumping out something that relies on brand name recognition and isn't necessarily a very strong story and is just capitalizing that because people will buy it. Because they say, oh, well, it's Disney, it's the Muppets, therefore it's good, and the kids will watch it. And we'll just shovel it out. Disney is big on this, especially back in the 2000s and the late 90s. Something about their executives, just for their producers, just decided to do all this kind of crap. And it absolutely... um, made a lot of the fans just furious so moving on we've actually got one that i remember watching and i watched recently i recently we rewatched this because uh it was available it was available to be pulled up you have uh raiders of the lost ark huge movie a lot of people watched it Uh, a lot of people loved it it made an entire franchise including an entire prequel series called the young indiana jones adventures which they don't even mention but uh indiana jones and the temple of doom a lot of people are shaken up by because it's actually a prequel to raiders of the lost ark it it's uh it's it takes place years earlier um and it is itself its own thing it does it is one of the only ones to not involve nazis of the original indiana jones trilogy uh the the other two directly involve nazis uh which is just interesting to note uh, it works very well, it's very much a a perfect uh, story in the sequence, and if you were to watch Temple of Doom and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think it would work just as well as if you were to watch them in chronological order as to when they were released. But if you watch them in chronological order in terms of which story came first in the character's lifetime, I think Temple of Doom is as good a starting point as any. And uh, it's also worth noting that the actor, uh, the child actor uh, who played Short Round Kehi Kwan, uh, recently got a lot of praise for uh, his role in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and um, opposite Michelle Yeoh and a host of other brilliant actors. And in that particular one, in this one, uh, he is phenomenal. I rewatched it recently, and I loved his performance. There were a lot of people who found him annoying because he talked really high up in his head. He had a bit of an, he has a bit of a speech impediment and a bit of a nasally voice. I don't know if that's just something he puts on for uh, things as an adult to kind of remind people that it's him, and if he has more of a natural intonation and uh, resonance that he uses, kind of to you know just go around. But it's also worth noting that uh, recently at the uh, at the awards where he I guess received an award for everything everywhere all at once he ran into harrison ford and harrison i this is according to kwan so i can only go based on that although in chinese isn't the first name the family name so maybe uh, it would be k well anyway uh so according to k he kwan uh he ran into harrison ford and uh harrison was like are you short round and he was like yep and they hugged, they took a selfie, they caught up a little bit. And I will be honest when I say that watching Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, the chemistry is not there between Indiana and Willie. It's not there. But the chemistry is there between Indiana and, uh, and Short Round. They play so well off of each other. In all of their scenes together. Even in the background. The direction that Spielberg gave Kehi To just sort of play off of the dialogue. And what was being said and everything. Works. There's little subtle things that he does. As you're watching. Where it's not like oh he's something animated. That you're watching that just like. Distracts or steals your attention. It builds onto what is already there. It adds some flavor. He obviously looks up to Indiana Jones. He obviously uh, cares about this man very strongly and looks up to him as a father figure. Now, when I first watched it, I always thought that uh, the friend of his who died in the restaurant and is shot, that that was his dad or something like that. But there's no concern throughout the chase scene for for like, where's my dad or something like that. No. So this is obviously just a different person unrelated to uh, the friend and uh one of my favorite lines from the entire movie remains to this day uh okay dr jones hold on to your potatoes just that line hold on to your potatoes i wish that more people said that <laughs> just like when we're going somewhere just like hold on to your potatoes i would say that if if the moment ever arose and i thought to say it in the moment i would totally say that whenever it would be my new catchphrase all right so hold on to your potatoes folks because we're gonna keep going Uh, So we've got the Fox and the Hound that came out the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark. And um, whereas in Raiders and Temple of Doom, we had the same people involved. it, It was a much darker story, but it also had that wonderful interaction between Indiana Jones and Short Round, where apparently George Lucas had gone through a divorce, and I guess he was looking to try and spend a lot of time with his kids. And so a lot of that translates into the story where you've got a lot of friction between... Um, Indiana Jones and Willie uh, the man and woman as this sexual relationship where it's all falling apart and they don't really get along that well and everything but then a really great relationship between Indiana Jones and Short Round so it's just worth noting that but around the same time we got the Fox and the Hound and the Fox and the Hound 2 was one of those 2000s prequels that came direct to video from Disney and that's why nobody really wanted to watch it (laughs) because the fox and the hound itself is not a happy story the film is not really well beloved by a lot disney fans and the fox and the hound 2 is much like bambi 2 where there was a very clear ending in the first one and instead this time we get just like a slightly different story that's a sequel And it's just meant to capitalize and saying, oh, well, it's Disney, so it's fine and safe. There were a lot of people who were just turning off their brains in the 2000s because of 9-11 and a lot of uh, discouragement from actively thinking and analyzing a lot of stuff in the 2000s. I was not very happy then since I am one of those people who can't turn my brain off. So anyway, the Fox and the Hound 2 got billed a lot on TV. They were like, buy your children, the Fox and the Hound 2, now available on video. It's like nobody wants it nobody um, so yeah I, I don't recommend that one i don't recommend a lot of the direct-to-video sequels that uh just never really worked uh if you want to watch them for a laugh go right ahead but they're not ones that i ever endorse as a rule unless i've sat down watched it and loved it return to oz is one of those rare exceptions where disney didn't make the first one but it's meant as a uh much more realistic and better made sequel um and even though it has a completely different tone it's not a musical it's it has uh characters that are much more like they're uh illustrated in the book and everything and it's directly taken from a couple of different oz books so it uses the source material that was one sequel that directly worked and that's one of the reasons why i love it and disney hated it it was at the time of a writer's strike it was at the it was um it had to be filmed in uh, the uk if i remember correctly but uh, I remember loving that movie growing up. Just so brilliant. And um, there, were, there were like genuine things going on with uh, a lot of uh, just Hollywood in general that made that movie. Uh, kind of never able to make back its money just because the budget was so explosive. But it ended up being a classic for a lot of us kids who grew up in the 80s and just loved it. All right, so next we have uh, The Thing, and the sequel was also called The Thing. And a lot of people were like, holy crap, is this a remake? And they're like, no, it's a prequel about what happened to the Norwegians at their base. And uh, then it turned out that because the story had the exact same beats in order, that, yeah, it is actually a sequel that just has everything happening in it. Like, you could say, oh, it's a prequel, but all you're doing is just substituting the names in and basically having everything else happen in roughly the same order with just a few changes. And of course there was the big push against having practical effects, where the studio insisted on having CGI done, and then the CGI looked like crap. (laughs) So that's one where a lot of people would say, give this one a miss, don't watch it. If you want to, watch it for a lark, I say. But don't expect it to be anywhere near as good as John Carpenter's The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing is one movie that I display on my shelf with a bunch of other John Carpenter movies because I am a huge fan, uh, especially of a lot of his 80s work. Uh, So yeah, give that one a miss, definitely. Now, next we have a couple of made-for-TV movies uh, based on Return of the Jedi. So we've got some prequels to Return of the Jedi made still in the 80s, and they were made each year following return of the jedi and this was going to be a regular thing where they were going to try and revive the tv special the star wars tv special since uh the star wars thanksgiving special everyone calls it the holiday special because that's the title but it's technically a thanksgiving special life day is not christmas it's thanksgiving uh in its equivalency so uh the following years we got a couple of made for tv movies that were very well done Excellent budget, excellent story, special effects, everything. Uh, called Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure and Ewoks: The Battle for Endor. And these were ones that I saw very often growing up on the Disney Channel, uh, and I loved it. Uh, I, I have watched these since then, and they hold up to this day. They are fun. They are part of Star Wars canon. You can absolutely watch them with your kids and they are just fun adventures. It's a two-parter technically about a couple of kids uh, who are uh, on Endor and something happens to their parents and they end up having to uh, uh, eventually escape from Endor with the help help of Wilford Brimley, (laughs) who we, of course, remember was in The Thing. So Wilford Brimley went from being in The Thing to being in this. He, he, Wilford Brimley is part of Star Wars, like it or not. But I love these two movies. They're fantastic and they're easily worth watching. Um, they're, they're the rare instance of prequels actually being relatively good. Now, they're cutesy and they're cheesy and everything. They're campy. But that's okay. Because, as a lot of people like to point out, Star Wars is kind of intended as a children's adventure. But these two worked, and I will still sit down and watch them. If you, if you ever are, are with me and we're, and we're bored and you say, hey, you want to watch uh, the two Ewok movies? I'm like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people. Where you say that, I'm, I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> we'll do it. Uh, so next, you've got Children of the Corn and then a sequel that came out 36 years later also called children of the corn was this by the same writer as the thing uh let me see here uh no in fact uh interestingly enough uh children of the corn was done by a writer director called kurt vimmer i might be mispronouncing that i don't care and then the thing the 2011 version was done by uh Matthias van Heningen Jr. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. And was written by Eric Heisserer. Heisserer. So, yeah. Maybe it was the studios. They just weren't very original in terms of their title. And they just wanted to capitalize on that. Because there was already sequels to Children of the Corn, if I remember correctly. And this was, you know, based on uh, Stephen King story, of course and there were huge changes made for the film so it's just relying on brand name recognition they're like oh well it's kind of a prequel but kind of a remake but kind of not and it's like or you could just make a movie like you know if you want to make it if you want to do like the stand or if you want to do like the remake of stephen king's it where it was the big budget studio version versus the made for tv version that's fine we can deal with it, but if you're going to just make it a prequel in 2020, back off. Because it's going to be a problem. Because audiences are not going to be satisfied with it. This is one of the reasons why we weren't satisfied with The Thing and Children of the Corn when they bothered to remake prequels, but not give the title anything to indicate that. Like, they could have called it The Thing Origins, and it would have at least made sense. Or they could have called it The Thing uh, colon, you know, whatever the name of the camp was uh, for the Norwegians, whatever their base was called. Uh, and then Children of the Corn, they could have, you know, they, they could have given it any other name. They, they could have called it, uh, you know, like, um, I don't know, Children of the Corn, the budding or whatever it is, you know, because at least corn buds, it, it, it would at least work. Uh, but yeah, it didn't involve a lot of the original people. It's just not as worth getting into. Uh, So then with uh, the action side of things, we've got Chuck Norris in Missing in Action in 1984. And then in 1985, we got Missing in Action 2, The Beginning. Um, And this one also features Chuck Norris, of course, reprising the role but playing uh, the character younger. And uh, at least this was produced by the same people, basically. Right? I mean, you could at least enjoy that why why would you not right it, it's just it's one of those things where at least if you've got sort of the same producers even if it's a different director you could watch it and at least enjoy it and it comes out within a year of each other it's capitalizing on that you could enjoy it and watch it so why not but instead we go with uh something else <laughs> In, entirely with a lot of these prequels this one i would actually watch i'm not a huge fan of chuck norris movies i'm not a huge fan of chuck norris's uh political views but i would at least watch these for a lark i watched um invasion usa and uh i reviewed that in my offbeat christmas movies uh reviews uh, that will be coming up later but uh in this particular case i would sit down and watch these just because they're action schlock and it would at least be fun to watch these two films and i'd probably watch them in reverse order with the beginning coming first and then missing an action coming after that so speaking of sequels we're gonna have to make this a two-parter because we are nowhere near done in terms of discussing prequels and uh, we've got a lot more to go through and this uh, recording is already quite long so uh, i'll end it here for part one and i'll see you back here for part two